Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to cease to pray. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove you from, from your midst, your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave you in your midst, a people humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall grace and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Man, you can be seated. Good morning, Grace Church. It is uh, good to see all of you again. We are now, congratulations, you are now eight weeks into the Minor Prophets. We have arrived, as you already heard, in the book of Zephaniah. So we're a little bit out of order. Uh, Pastor Fred is going to be bringing Habakkuk to you next week. Uh, he is out of town uh, this week, so we, we flip-flopped here, and, uh, and you've got Zephaniah. Uh, so Zephaniah is not the last of the Minor Prophets, but Zephaniah is a, a conclusion of sorts. It is the last of the prophets who arise before the exile of, uh, of Israel into Babylon, before the Babylons will invade and take the Israelites out of their homeland. So Haggai, like Zechariah and, and Malachi, will take place after the exile. Um, and because of this, Zephaniah is almost like a conclusion. Uh, it's almost like a summary of the last few prophets that we've heard for the last Eight weeks. So he's going to highlight those two main themes that we've continued to see over and over and over again, those themes of judgment and, and restoration. Uh, and as I'm reflecting on those themes this morning, I'm especially conscious of Spike 80 DF. So you probably don't know. If you do, I'll be impressed. But Spike 80 DF is a herbicide that, according to its product description, and I quote, offers non-selective, pre-emergent control of grasses and broadleaf weeds in bare ground areas like substations and pumping stations. In short, if you don't want something to grow, Spike ADDF is your guide. The only reason I know um, of Spike ADDF uh, is, uh, is not because of its Amazon reviews, who describe it as A+, A+, and quote, I've got to say this is one fast-acting, no-nonsense chemical. If you want to kill some trees or what have you, I would use Spike ADDF, end quote. So in short, Spike ADDF is good at what it's supposed to do. It's very good at what it's supposed to do. 
Um, so good, in fact, that I know it because in, uh, in 2010, shortly after Auburn had defeated Alabama in an epic Iron Bowl comeback, uh, I heard on the radio the following week, just after I had rolled the famous Tumor's Trees uh, at the corner of Tumor's Corner, that's how we do it in Alabama, we win and we roll trees. So I just finished rolling them and I was listening to the radio and I heard one disgruntled Alabama fan named Harvey Updike brag on the radio about using Spike 80DF against those very same trees that I had just rolled. And what, what ensued became a national story, you might have heard about it, uh, and while since New oaks have been planted. Uh, they have been replaced. What was once there is no longer. Those 100-year-old oaks were damaged beyond repair and died. Um, you see, even the best tools used wrongly can have devastating results. Spike ADDF is good at what it was supposed to do, and so good, in fact, that when used in a way that was not intended, it had devastating results. And this is true of many things, but it's particularly true of the Bible. It's particularly true of, of Scripture. Satan made this clear in the Garden of Eden when he used God's words against his people to ask the question, did God really say, you know, God said this, did he really say this? And he sought to twist God's words against Adam and Eve. He did it again in his temptation of Jesus. Remember when he quoted certain scriptures back at Jesus, seeking to turn his good father's words against him, hoping to draw him away from his father by the very thing God had given to Jesus as his bread and as his nourishment. So as we're now eight weeks into our survey of the prophets, I'm conscious particularly of the ways that that same enemy might seek to twist God's words in the prophets against us. Conscious of the ways that he might employ that same method and use the prophets not for our good as God intended, but for evil. So as I've reflected and as I've been studying Zephaniah, uh, the past couple of weeks, um, a couple of ways stood out, a couple, two main ways that our enemy might seek to twist these prophets against us. One that we'll see in Zephaniah as he summarizes the prophets is this, the, the enemy could use, uh, could use these to convince us that judgments are only meant for those people, that God's judgments are only meant for those people. In other words, he could use these prophets to make us very good cultural analysts of every culture except our own. He could use them to make us very good at spotting the specks in everyone else's eyes while missing the log in our own. He could convince us that all these judgments that we're hearing about are only for for those people. But there's a second way that he could use these prophets against us, and that's by convincing us that that restoration is only for those people. That all the judgments are for us, but that restoration couldn't possibly be for us. He could could use it in, in such a way that we hear the judgments and condemnation of the prophets, but not their restoration and hope. You see, God means for these judgments to lead his people to repentance. And so, as we look at Zephaniah, we have these two things in mind, right? These two ways that the enemy could use the scriptures against us. And we're going to use, I think the Lord is going to use Zephaniah to speak back to us in the same way that Jesus quoted back the scriptures at the enemy. So first, let's look at the judgment of Zephaniah. The first thing we see right off the bat in chapter 1 of Zephaniah, is that God's people will be judged for their disobedience. So he begins his prophecy in chapter 1 with a prophecy against Judah. You hear it in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with them. You can also see it in chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious 
and defile that oppressing city. You hear that word rebellious. He's speaking specifically of Jerusalem there. So God's people will be judged for their disobedience. We see this throughout Scripture, right? This is not simply an Old Testament truth. You see it in 1 Peter chapter 4. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? God's judgment always begins with his people because they are held to a higher account and a higher standard. It doesn't end there, but it begins there. As church of youth scandals and cover-ups have emerged over the past few years, I've heard a number of people say, well, yeah, that's, that's bad, but look at Hollywood and Harvey Weinstein, right? Look at Washington, D.C. and Theo Epstein. That's, that's, that's nothing compared to that. And God's anger certainly does broil at Hollywood and at Washington. Abuse in any context is unacceptable. But for it to occur in a place of spiritual refuge... For it to occur among God's people is especially obscene. And as the people of God, our move when judgment comes down is not to finger point, according to Zephaniah. It's not to turn and find someone who could possibly be worse, but it's to look inward and to repent. It's to go into contrition, repentance. You see this in 1 Corinthians 5, 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so if if God's people are going to be judged for our disobedience, right? God's people, according to Zephaniah, are judged for their disobedience. Which sins should we be looking out for? Which ones are, are are we particularly prone to? Well, I think that's a complicated answer, but thankfully Zephaniah gives us some hint. Uh, The first hint that he gives us is in chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18 of Zephaniah, he says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. What Zephaniah highlights here is the sin of materialism. The sin of materialism. That is what Jesus highlighted in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where he said, You cannot worship both God and money. You will love one and hate the other. You will follow one and despise the other. Now, while certainly none of us 21st century Dallas suburbanites could possibly be at risk for materialism, I think we might need to hang out here anyway, right? Of course, all of us are guilty in some way, shape, or form at some point of materialism. For some of us, this looks like throwing money into our portfolio, right, and watching that number grow and expand. We're good at delayed gratification, and so we look to our security and our hope in that growing and expanding portfolio. For others of us, It looks like scrolling through Amazon and Etsy, knocking back shots of buy it now, hoping to fill that craving in our soul for something more, hoping that maybe this one will be the one that makes us not feel so lonely, not feel so out of place in the world. But you see, both of those things, though they look like opposites, they both come back to what Zephaniah describes here. They both come back to looking for silver and gold to deliver us from despair or from discomfort, or from judgment, grasping at something that only God can really provide and only God was meant to provide. Now, I don't know what obedience and stewardship looks like for you, but I do know this. I do know that following Jesus will radically alter how we pursue and how we use our resources. Following Jesus will radically change how we chase after resources and then how we use the resources that we get. 
The question that Zephaniah wants to ask of God's people is this one. Do our resources work for God's kingdom or for yours? Do your resources tend to work for God's kingdom or do they merely work for your kingdom? So Zephaniah calls out materialism. He asks the people to turn from it. Not just materialism, though. He also asks them to turn from complacency. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. You see, it's easy to say, look, okay, he's given us this long list of sins. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm not to blame for those people who are doing that stuff. I'm just going to keep quiet, keep my head down, keep doing my own thing. God won't notice. He's not going to do good or bad. You see, in Zephaniah's opinion, such people are not without guilt. And while they believe themselves to be under the radar, the Lord says he's going to get out his lamp and search for those, even who aren't blatantly sinning, even for those who we would look at and say, they seem to be doing just fine. The Lord knows their hearts. The Lord knows that they are not passionate about him. They are not seeking him. They are not worshiping him, following him, sacrificing for him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, Whoever is not with me is against me. and Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Brothers and sisters, there's a time for moderation, yes, but according to Zephaniah, there's also a time for action. The one who is simply complacent and does not actively work against God, both Zephaniah and Jesus say, whether we mean to or not, are. I'm reminded of the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, who Jesus says to them, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, Neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Ray Ortland says of the church at Laodicea, they weren't heretical or wacko. They were somewhere in the mushy middle. They neither promoted the gospel nor opposed it. They thought the Bible had some good ideas, but they didn't relish it. They wanted their kids to grow up moral but not missional. They found some space in their busy weekend schedule for going to church, but they didn't redesign their whole lives around the cause of the gospel. Jesus would not put up with it. I will spit you out of my mouth. There is a kind of Christianity that Jesus finds distasteful. It is the kind of Christianity that presumes that there are some spheres of our life, there are some areas of our life that Jesus will not assert lordship over. He would not ask such a thing. There are some areas and places in our life, yes, Sunday morning is God's right time. That's the time when... We give to Jesus, but there are certain other areas that are not Jesus' business. These are the areas that can go under his radar. And Jesus says, I will not tolerate it. And yet, in Revelation 3, that's not the end of the verse. That's the one that gets quoted at us most often. And we also have, but we also have the second half of the verse, which also gets quoted, but very, very few times, very rarely do they get quoted together. The latter half of these verses in Revelation are Jesus' response. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Did you hear that? If anyone comes 
and opens the door. As Jesus says, as you're in your complacency, as you hear the knock at the door, as you hear the Lord at the door, and you say, I think I'll stay seated. Perhaps I'll wait for my pastor or my president to make the first move. Jesus says, no, I don't need the pastor or the president. If anyone comes to the door and answers it, I will go in and eat with him. Today, will you answer the door in repentance, turning from materialism or complacency or a thousand other ways not to follow Jesus, opening the door to him, opening to his knock as he knocks on the door of the lukewarm heart and the lukewarm church. So yes, God's judgment begins with his people, but Zephaniah is clear it does not end there. God's enemies, while God's people will be judged for their disobedience, God's enemies will be judged for their pride. Chapter 2, verse 8, I have heard the taunts of Moab, the Lord says, and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Further down in verse 15, He says, this is the exultant city that has lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. The nations of Zephaniah's day, the world of Zephaniah's day had become entirely self-confident, entirely self-reliant. They are unwilling, even did you hear it? They're unwilling even to acknowledge that anyone else matters. They said in their heart, I am and there's no one else. We can hear them shouting back at Zephaniah, these are my freedoms. This is my body. Or that great, not-so-modern cry, you worry about yourself, I'll worry about myself. But God is unimpressed with the nation's self-reliance. He's unimpressed with their self-confidence, and he's equally unimpressed with their leaders. Her officials, according to chapter 3, verse 3, are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that will leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Joe Rigney says of these verses, In our day, this would include unjust bureaucrats, ungodly judges that pervert justice, police officers that gun down men without sufficient cause, politicians who accept bribes, legislators that protect Planned Parenthood, journalists who cover up the heinousness of evil, and religious leaders who seek to provide a veneer of spirituality over these abominations. For both Israel and the surrounding nations, their leaders are reflections of, and their leaders are amplifiers of, their individual and their national sins. And I suspect as we look around at our world, this 2,500-year-old prophecy is not quite as dated as we might expect. And so... In light of this pride within the nations, and in light of this pride within her leaders, an intense judgment is proclaimed. Did you hear it as we read chapter 1? Look back at chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. That language, sweep away, what does that remind you of in the Bible? Sounds like the flood, doesn't it? I will sweep away all these things. But you see, it goes even further than the flood because he even sweeps away the fish which were preserved in the flood. You see, this is, this is much more intense than a mere invasion, isn't it? Sweeping away man and beast, fish of the sea. The Babylonians were not going to do this. But I thought that's what this prophecy was about, was the Babylonians coming, right? 
Well, yes, of course, but as we've seen in Scripture constantly, temporal judgments are all meant to point our eyes to the eternal judgment. All temporary judgments, all physical judgments are meant to point our eyes to the last judgment, to the great judgment. This is not merely Old Testament God, right? This is not simply the God of the Old Testament who's a little bit meaner and a little bit judgier. But then in the New Testament, we we get nice God who's not about judgment anymore. No, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, the Lord says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning in the end, my friend, God wants to assure you today that He does indeed care. That He will not delay judgment forever. God wants to assure you that He cared about the people of Nineveh and Jerusalem, that He cares about Brianna Taylor, that He cares about the unborn, that He cares about the genocide among the Uyghurs of China, and that He cares about the persecuted church. And what a message of hope! This is for us. What a message of hope this is for our world. Sin will not have the last word. Satan will not triumph. God's enemies will be judged. What a powerful message we have for our languishing and our longing civilization. Are they hearing it from us? So this judgment is corporate, it's national, it's even cosmic. But in this bittersweet personal application... We hear the word that God also cares about you. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me. Surely you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But their response is inadequate. But all the more, they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. They doubled down. This judgment, this temporary judgment, meant to point their eyes to the final judgment, instead led them not outward to God, but even further inward to self-reliance and self-dependence. My friend, I don't know your story. We know from many other places in Scripture that God uses circumstances for a thousand different purposes. So I don't know why what is happening to you right now is happening. So I just want to be clear about that. But as the Lord upends your life, As he upends your country, your routines, even perhaps your health. Is it possible that Zephaniah, through time and cultures, is positing this question to you? Are there any areas of repentance and correction that our current moment, that God in his providence, through his word and through your circumstances, are being uncovered and unveiled? Are there any areas of your heart that the Lord is seeking to do work in? My friend, do not double down. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Today is the day of salvation. Galatians gives the good word that if you are crucified with Christ, if you would die to yourself, you will live again with Christ in you. It is not I who lives, Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. He will bring restoration. Lay your life at his feet, and Jesus will put together the broken pieces. And so we arrive at the restoration. So as he corrects the enemy's lies, Zephaniah does, that the judgment is only for them. He does not stop there. He also corrects the lie that the restoration is only for them. So if we recognize these sins in our own day, among our own people, the next question is naturally, right, what should we do? Okay, that's great. Good cultural analysis there. We've 
you've exposed some stuff. What am I supposed to do about it? Perhaps you've heard this question from family and friends. So as the people of God, as that remnant, as that people within a people, that faithful group that is persevering among the larger group, how should we respond? And Zephaniah gives us instructions. First, he says that restoration begins with repentance. Restoration begins with repentance. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 say, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do his just command. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Joe Rigney is again insightful here. He says, Unlike the exultant city, unlike the false patriotism and national pride, we are called to humble ourselves and seek the Lord. We are to do His just commands, even if the rest of our society does not. Instead of lifting up our head in pride, we are to bow low in humility. This is one of the reasons we worship the way that we do. In the midst of a proud, decadent, violent, and rebellious nation, we gather together to confess our sins, to repent, to seek the face of God, in hope that He might pour out His grace upon us and through us upon our nation. That's exactly what he promises to do. So the remnant begins, according to Zephaniah, in repentance. And in doing so, repentance refines the remnant. We see this in chapter 3, verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. I love football. I loved playing football. I love watching football. I love the majesty of the game. I love its physicality. I love the strategy. But I hated two-a-days. Two-a-days were the worst. If you don't know what two days are, they're uh, when you practice in the morning and the evening. And for my coach, it was actually three days. We came back in the afternoon as well. And they always picked. They didn't wait until, let us do it in the, you know, March or wait until October. It magically happened in July and August, which in Alabama, like Texas, is, uh, is none too pleasant to be outside. As a matter of fact, two days, honestly, are probably the closest analogy I have to the wrath of God. They were awful. And as I was telling Moises this week about two-a-days, he asked me a great question that I've never really heard framed that way before, which was simply, why did they make you do that? <laughs> great question, Moy. Thank you. Um, at the time, honestly, I thought it was because our coach hated us, and maybe he did. Um, but I think some more was, was going on there as well, right? Two-a-days were the time that the guys who signed up to wear the football jersey on Fridays to school and pick up chicks, right, they quit. It seems like a great plan to do until two-a-days come, and they were weeded out, right? Two-a-days were also the time when we as a team bonded over our collective misery, (laughs) and also a time when we found in ourselves what we didn't know was there, which was the ability in the fourth quarter when you were exhausted to dig just a little bit deeper and find something in order to keep going. Right? That's where that was forged among us. That's where we learned as a unit to work together for a common goal. And in the same way, while judgments pers- purge out the unfaithful, they refine the faithful. Like two-a-days, like a refiner's fire, they bond the faithful together. They purify them. 
and they strengthen them. And so while, like a refiner's fire, what emerges might come out smaller and by the visible eye a little bit less impressive, what emerges is stronger and more useful for its purpose. It's more valuable. You see, the most important question before us today is not whether America was a Christian nation or still is a Christian nation. We can let the historians debate that. The most important question, according to Zephaniah before us, is whether we are a part of the remnant. Whether we are a part of the faithful within the faithful. Whether we will serve America... I'm sorry, we will serve America best when we do not serve America first. You see, while Zephaniah does promise that the faithful and the remnant will be restored. He does not give the same promise to, to Israel collectively, but he does give that promise to the remnant. He does give that promise to the faithful within. You will be restored. You will be refined, but you will be restored. And God's judgment indeed is restoration. It is judgment for some, and it is restoration for others. And it is an unexpected restoration. It is not what you expect to hear. In verse 9 of chapter 3, the Lord says, At that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Did you hear the plural there? The peoples. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, that is beyond the boundary of the known world, I am drawing, He says, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, dispersed, those who are far off, right, shall bring my offering to me. What God is promising here is a restoration among the peoples. What we expect is a restoration of his people, right? What we expect is a restoration of Israel. This is who this prophecy is largely to. And yet what he promises is something much more glorious. It is a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham to bless the nations through his seed. The Lord is promising a new people, what Peter calls a holy nation. He says, indeed... The dispersed ones, the peoples, will be gathered. They will be refined and they will be made new. They will be restored. According to Zephaniah, out of the ashes of judgment rise a humble people. Those who have learned to seek refuge in the Lord. Those who love justice and truth and those who are without fear. May the same be said of us as we emerge from the refiner's fire. So yes, many of us believe that God basically must like us because we are so likable, right? That needs to be corrected. Zephaniah corrects that. We live in complacency and presumption upon our Creator, and we need to hear the thunderclap of God's judgment. We need to hear that He will not just let it go, that He cares too much for that. But others of us only hear the thunderclap. Others of us picture God as though He's got a quiver full of lightning bolts, and we are one wrong move away from getting popped. And Zephaniah also corrects this. And that's why chapter 3, verse 17 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. We read it once. I'm going to read it again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And hear this. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17 flashes forth to kill that view of God as a malevolent dictator who's out to get you. For the remnant, 
for the one who comes humbly seeking refuge and hungry for justice and truth. What you heard in fear as thunderclaps transforms in your ear to a booming, exultant voice singing a melody. And as you listen out for the melody, you notice that it's not just any song, but it's actually a composition on your behalf. Is an exultant song of delight in you. The Lord, your God, did you hear it, is in your midst. You hear in that John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Lord, our God, is in our midst. He has dwelt among us. My friend, do you know that if you are Jesus's, God delights in you? He does not just tolerate you. He does not just love you out of obligation because he's God and that is what he's supposed to do. He rejoices, according to Zephaniah, over you. He is exultantly singing. He is joyful. This is not some superficial self-esteem boost. This is your maker's melody. This is his composition of who you are in him. And you don't simply have to take his word for it. You don't simply have to stand in your room and listen, hoping you'll catch a whiff of the melody in your ear. For Hebrews tells us that we only need to look at Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. There is a lot of joy in front of Jesus, right? It doesn't look like it was so. A lot of misery was in front of him. But certainly, the glory of God was in front of him. That seat at the right hand of his father was in front of him. But I'm convinced that as I read and study that verse, part of the joy, if not a significant part of the joy that was set before him, was the work that he was going to do among people like you and people like me. You see, Jesus doesn't roll his eyes as you come to him. Jesus didn't roll his eyes at the blind who came to receive healing any more than a doctor rolls his eyes at those who come to receive physical healing. Jesus takes joy in mending what is broken in you. Jesus takes joy in strengthening what is weak in you. He is a Savior who is gentle and lowly. He is not embarrassed by or frightened by you. Instead, as you lurk in the shadows, scared of the thunderclap God, Jesus awaits you in the light, rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Perhaps you've been living as though you're too far gone to receive Jesus' mercy, and God is calling you today to say, join in the song. Rejoice with me. Come to Christ. Perhaps you've been living as though you're too far ahead to receive Jesus' mercy that you didn't need it in the first place. Jesus is calling you, bidding you to join in the song of the Savior. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment, that's what this meal is about. That's why we do what we do. The King of Israel who is in our midst is the mighty one who saves. We take this meal with no fear of judgment either temporal judgment or eternal judgment, because his body is broken for us. His blood was shed for you. God's indignation was consumed by Jesus so that you would not be consumed by it. So as you take and eat, may you listen for the glad melody of your maker, and then may we follow by singing to him who sings over 
us. So as the ushers come forward um, and begin to distribute, would you pray with me? Father, this morning we are Lord, we're reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise your good name that mercy does triumph over judgment. So help us to hear your voice. Lord, help us to hear it not merely as a, a shaking thunderclap, but Lord, may we also hear it as a glad song. Thank you for this picture of mercy that we have in communion as we take and eat, as we drink of the cup. And Lord, we ask that the Spirit would continue His work in us as we respond in faith. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.